I'll tell you about the mad stone that I've heard my grandmother tell about. When I was a little boy, she'd tell me a story about when her ancestors came over in the early 1600s from Wales, England, and probably they had used this uh, mad stone in Wales, England. Probably that was an old remedy back then. Or, or mad dogs. Or, rabid dogs. Yeah, rabid dogs, so forth. And uh, she would tell me about this mad stone and said, it looked kind of like a honeycomb. Who are we listening to? That's the late Reverend Stuart Hines talking to his grandson. I was given this recording by his daughter, Charlotte. Oh, really? And how did you come into contact with Charlotte? Well, I've lived in Kentucky for most of my life. My dad grew up in a small town called Whitesville. And if you ask my wife, I spend too much time on Facebook. So I was in a Whitesville history Facebook group and all of a sudden there was a post about this weird mystical stone. And I had to find out more and talk to some folks uh, who I knew in Whitesville and they hooked us up. As a newcomer who's an artist and mom, I, I haven't lived in Kentucky for super long, but I'm really interested in finding out more about my new home and what this small town life is all about. So what's all this talk in the clip about rabid dogs and this crazy stone that looks like a honeycomb? Well, unlike the name suggests, this mad stone he's talking about is a very old healing tradition passed down through his family for generations. The mad part comes from the old name for rabid animals, and the mad stone was supposed to be able to cure rabies and other diseases. Ariel, this story is kind of a legend within this family, and the stone has impacted countless lives, including my own. Really? I'm so fascinated to hear this story, and I already have so many questions. We'll try to answer all of them, but this story does cover a lot of ground. The scourge of rabies, the faith of a minister, the origins of healing, and all of it centered around a mysterious rock. I'm Austin Carter. And I'm Ariel Avery. From WKMS and PRX, this is the mystical Ellis Madstone. On Middle of Everywhere, telling big stories from the small places we call home. So Austin, I feel like this story has a lot going on. So where are we going to start? Okay, so I think to understand the Madstone as this fascinating cultural relic that it is and what it meant to the lives of the people who carried and used it, we're going to have to look at it through the eyes of this family, the Ellises. So let me start off by introducing you to the people who told me this story. Sounds great. So Charlotte Whitaker is the daughter of Reverend Hines, who we heard at the beginning, and the first time I met her in Whitesville, Kentucky, she showed me a picture in an old book as she told me about the man who kind of ties this whole story together. Well, it was Joseph Perkins Ellis, and this is where my dad wrote in it, my mother's grandparents. So you said this man kind of ties the whole story together. Who is Joseph Perkins Ellis? So J.P. Ellis, as he was known, was a Baptist minister from a long line of Baptists. They migrated from Virginia to Kentucky in the 1800s, and they eventually settled in Davis County within a dense forest near a place now called Old Panther Creek. Even when J.P. Ellis came to Old Panther Creek, there was a wilderness out there. There were buffalo out there. There were six tribes of Indians in this area. 
And Charlotte's father, Reverend Hines, also heard stories of the difficulty of the Ellis family's journey from Virginia to Kentucky. When they left Virginia, they came by covered wagon. But I remember my dad was saved. When nightfall would come, they brought their wagons, they would put them in a circle, and they'd bring the horses on the inside of the circle of the wagons, and they would drag up what dead timber they could get, stash around the outside of the wagons, make a ring of fire, and they would run relays uh, on this keeping the fire burning through the night in order that the panthers would sneak through it, slit the horse's throat, suck the blood. That's what they did. Ooh, panthers sucking blood. I didn't know that there were panthers even in Kentucky. I didn't realize that there was such dangerous wildlife here. I know mountain lions as we know them now were a real threat back then. J.P. Ellis's family didn't have a lot to protect them from this wilderness except for their skills, a few tools, and their strong Baptist faith, a faith that would lead J.P. Ellis to found 16 churches in and around Davis County. But they did have something else that was meant to protect them. J.P. Ellis wrote a biographical sketch of his family later in his life that described the journey of his ancestors from England in the early 1600s. He says, they brought with them a stone said to be a sovereign remedy for their bites, mad dogs, etc., which they were careful to keep in the family so that from that day to this, it has been safely kept and has descended in the family. Wow, so the stone and the story just kept getting passed down from generation to generation. Exactly. And this was the story Charlotte's father had heard as a boy. My dad had always talked about it, that it had come down through the years, and it was supposed to have been like magic. I always thought kind of a witchcraft type thing, you know. This mad stone was believed to cure rabies and bites of poisonous animals, a very real concern for the first Ellis's to carry the stone. Charlotte's friend and amateur historian Pat Gibson traced the stone back to a man named David Ellis, who was an early settler to the British colony of Jamestown. The story was that John Smith had recruited David Ellis and a couple of other people to build a house for Powhatan. And Powhatan was the chief of the Pamunkey Indians, and his daughter was Pocahontas. We're talking about the John Smith and Pocahontas here? The very same, of Disney film fame. (laughs) (laughs) You know, life for those early settlers in Jamestown was difficult, and their future was uncertain in those early days. And as David Ellis was setting off for this new land, his father gave him something to protect him from the many dangers they'd heard about on this foreign continent. You know, I'm just sort of guessing that it was picked up on the ocean beach there when his father was waving goodbye to him, well, here's a stone, take care of it, keep it in the family, and it'll help heal uh, some of the diseases and things that might happen to you in the new world. Imagine setting out on this journey across the world to a place you've never even seen a photo of. You've heard about stories of wealth and opportunity, but also wild beasts, danger, and diseases, and somehow you're convinced to make the journey. I would be terrified. I don't know if I could do it. Yeah, I don't know if I would have been cut out for that life either, but there is something kind of alluring about setting out into the wilderness to start a whole new life. And without a lot to protect you, faith in God or even a healing stone would feel like armor. There were so many dangerous things people could fall prey to. So why was rabies so threatening? My 
My name is Monica Murphy, and I wrote Rabid, A Cultural History of the World's Most Diabolical Virus with my husband, Bill Wasik. People have been aware and worried about rabies going back further than we can possibly know. With the very first introduction of written language, people right away start writing about rabies. The Sumerian texts mention rabies and penalties for owners of dogs who rampage and bite others and expose them to rabies. So this has been a preoccupation of man throughout history, and one can presume prehistory, going back as far as dogs and people have been living together. Wow, that's so interesting. To consider rabies is this huge part of our history. But today we don't really experience it the same way. I mean, I kind of thought we had pretty much defeated rabies. Well, thanks to Louis Pasteur, we do have a rabies vaccine, but even today it's still a very dangerous threat in some parts of the world. And if you think about something recent like the coronavirus pandemic, which has resulted in death in the U.S. in around 5% or less of cases, Monica's description of what rabies is really is truly terrifying. The disease itself really is devastating. It is virtually 100% fatal. It has the highest case fatality rate of any infectious disease, meaning once you have symptoms of rabies, you're going to die. And the death is, is not a pretty one. It is marked by hallucinations and convulsions and all sorts of miseries, not only for the sufferer, but for everyone around them. It's a horrible way to, to watch your loved one go. And especially because rabies disproportionately affects children, this has been just very upsetting to, to people throughout you know, human history and the focus of, of a lot of interest in how to uh, prevent people from, from dying this terrible death. Wow, that sounds horrible. As a mom, I just, I can't imagine watching my child die in this manner. Yeah, I don't think uh, anybody wants to imagine that and would fault people for fearing rabies and being afraid, especially if you had to watch that very thing. It's, it's really, truly horrible. But going back even to ancient times, there are a variety of solutions that people come up with to try to fight rabies, including madstones. Therapies like the Madstone being written about and touted for centuries. You know, everything from the bathing in salt water to the truly weird. Pliny the Elder from uh, the ancient times, his hair of the dog remedy gave us that phrase today that the idea that if you were to put some hairs from the dog who inflicted the bite into the bite wound itself, you could prevent rabies. And just so you know, if you would prefer to just eat the dog's head outright, that might work as well, according to Pliny. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> I always wondered where the phrase hair of the dog comes from. I know, right? And the thing that I think is so interesting about hair of the dog is that it speaks to a part of early science and healing that is kind of correct, that a little bit of the thing that wounded you could possibly heal you whether it's a tiny bit of a virus or a mimosa after a late night of drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So crazy how that actually works, huh? Okay, so there were all these potential treatments for rabies, some which kind of seem more suspect than others. Why was the Madstone unique? And how was it used? And why did it stick around as a source for healing for so long? Well, there's a lot of lore behind Madstones, just like with all the other rabies treatments Monica alluded to. 
Madstones were supposed to come from the stomach of an animal like a deer or a cow, with the most powerful stones coming from an albino or spotted deer. They couldn't be bought or sold, though some people tried, and you couldn't take the stone to a patient for treatment, they had to come to the stone. It would be heated or boiled with fresh milk and stuck to the bite wound and left until it fell off naturally. And this was a widely accepted treatment up until the 20th century. Even Abraham Lincoln sent his son for Madstone treatment at one point. People at this time might employ multiple natural remedies in the fight against rabies, but the Madstone was different. There is something pretty special about the Madstone. And, and what's special about it, it seems to sort of go beyond the, the weirdness and the intricacies of how it's used. The way that the madstones are sort of imbued with magic and value, you can imagine how valuable an object which is purported to protect you is. You know, it just, it's the symbolic value of that. You against the wilderness and you've got this thing, you know, that holds the worst case scenario at bay. Yeah, I can imagine that something that seems to hold these magical healing properties would be very valuable indeed. I mean, this is life or death. Oh, yeah. And in his research, Pat Gibson found exactly that. Well, I found in one case where a man was offered a thousand dollars and a milk cow and a calf for his madstone. I thought that's a lot of money back in the 1800s. I also found an article where a Russian physician who settled in Nevada offered his stone for sale in the 1880s for $1,500, and it was bought by a farmer who formed a stock company to buy the stone and sold around 1,000 people's shares for $1 apiece. And Pat also said he found instances of people being charged as much as $5 an hour for the use of a madstone. And the Ellis's madstone was so valuable to them that J.P. Ellis mentioned it in his will. And in the will, on the ninth clause, it said that he would will this stone to his family members. And the use of it and the money from it would be divided equally. You mentioned earlier that these madstones were supposed to come from the belly of a beast. And Reverend Hines said his grandmother said it looked like a honeycomb. So have you seen this thing? Well, I have, and I can fully explain the unusual origins of this stone later, but the first time I saw it in person, I really just thought it looked odd and definitely not like a normal rock, but also not like something from inside an animal. It's pinkish white, and the end is pockmarked with these kind of craters, and it has these shallow, evenly cut striations across the face, and the stone is probably only about an inch and a half long. But honestly, I just thought it looked weird. Huh. It kind of makes me wonder about the powers people attribute to odd and pretty things simply because they're unique. It sounds like this rock was pretty unusual and maybe could have easily had some of these powers attributed to it because of that? I wondered the same thing, and we'll talk about a few reasons why people believed in these stones in a bit. But when I went to the museum to see the stone, another mystery emerged. There was an unexpected note that accompanied the stone. What did it say? It had the phone number for a woman named Rachel Camp, saying the stone had been used on her brother, J.W. And it worked.
Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again. So that was what I got when I called Rachel Camp's phone number. I had no idea how old the note was or if she or her brother were still living. So I started searching obituaries and I found one for a woman who had been married to a man named J.W. Camp in the Owensboro area and realized that he had passed away in the early 2000s. So I started posting in Facebook groups local to Davis County, trying to find anyone who knew J.W. Camp or his sister Rachel or any of their children or their family. And after a few dead-end hints, I finally got a name for J.W. Camp's son and realized he was far from Kentucky, out west in Nevada. My name is Ralph Camp, and uh, my father was uh, James Wesley Camp, more commonly known as J.W. In fact, I think a A lot of people didn't even know he had a name to go with J.W. Ralph is 77, and his father was supposedly healed by the Ellis family's Madstone. And I wanted to find out a little bit more about his dad. He grew up outside of Owensboro, Kentucky, on a farm. And uh, he had one sister uh, named Rachel. And my uh, grandmother's name, the only name I knew, was Nanabelle. So I read Ralph the note I'd found at the Owensboro Museum, and I asked him about what he thought about the likelihood of this occurrence and about why his family might have used the Madstone 40 years after the advent of the rabies vaccine. My Aunt Rachel uh, and Nanabelle were both into natural remedies. My grandmother, Nanabelle, did not trust doctors. And if uh, Aunt Rachel says that, I tend to accept that. I don't discount that. She was the one who, who would be involved in something like that, would be a preserver of uh, traditions like that. I, I don't question it. So I asked Ralph why he thought his grandmother, Nanabelle, and his aunt, Rachel, had an aversion to the budding field of modern medicine in the 1920s or 30s when his dad might have been bitten by a rabid animal. But he didn't really know. I do know that Nanabelle also advocated natural herbs and natural remedies, and that's that's about as far as I can go. Sounds like Nanabelle was an early anti-vaxxer. And it sounds like Ralph believes in the efficacy of his family's natural remedies. You know, this story also kind of makes me think about all these natural and spiritual healing practices in contemporary day, like herbal or aromatherapy or even healing crystals. Yeah, me too. And so much so that I went to one of those places in Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, We even have an angelic stargate here. (laughs) I know. And almost everyone can feel it. It's basically... uh, It's a portal, and it's where our healing angels basically come and go. Susan Edwards owns Wild Hair Studio and Rock Shop in Paducah, Kentucky. They sell everything from salt lamps and healing crystals to aromatherapy items, essential oils, and incense. They also offer psychic readings and other spiritual and sound healing services. 
I wonder what drew people to crystals as a source of healing and what they're believed to do. We, we focus mostly on quartz crystals and uh, all of their varieties. The next thing about quartz is that it, it emits more far infrared than almost anything else on Earth. When you have far infrared, you can put it on like a little owie and it will create a little micro fever and jiggle the water in your cells a little bit. So it can help to release toxins and, and just basically heal. Now, of course, we know that now here in the 21st century. Healers didn't know that thousands of years ago, but they just knew quartz helped. So Susan sees all life as electrical beings that resonate and vibrate with certain frequencies. And there are healthy frequencies which allow bodies to heal more easily or maintain a healthy balance, just as certain frequencies might hint at disease or, as she emphasizes, dis-ease. Where crystals or aromatherapy or the mad stone can help is it can clear out that energetic wound so that your body can get back to balance and to health. Susan thinks that the power of the Madstone has to do with the energy surrounding it. At some point, somebody picked it up and started using it as a healing. So now we've got the energetic fingerprints from that, that original healer. She says we can imbue all kinds of things with energy and importance, and she refers to these items as talisman. We all use talisman. My husband, he's a Catholic, so he has a cross. He wears a cross every day, all day long, and won't take it off. All it technically is is just a, a piece of metal shaped into a cross. But it has meaning for him, and it makes him feel protected, and it makes him feel connected to his divinity and um, to God and to his history. But we all have those kinds of things that we, that we imbue our power to. The energetic fingerprint of healing is intriguing to me. I'm still pretty suspicious about the contemporary healing crystals and all, but I totally believe that our minds can be powerful agents of healing just by believing that something else has a healing effect. I mean, isn't that the definition of the placebo effect? So it totally makes sense that people use these sort of talisman to keep them safe and healthy. Yeah, this idea of the talisman is really fascinating to me too. And by those standards, the Ellis family certainly saw their Madstone as something that gave them power to face a potentially deadly disease. It definitely seems that way. But an item that gives its owner the feeling of power or connection to do something greater than themselves is not really the same as a cure for rabies. So I'm still kind of left wondering whether the Madstone treatments actually worked. I mean, so many people were using them, so they must have seen some kind of efficacy. Well, that kind of depends on what you want to believe. If you're just looking for the scientific explanation, then Monica has one. Our best data from pre-Louis Pasteur, mid-19th century, suggests that if a person is bitten by a definitely rabid animal, the chances that they're going to come down with and die of rabies is, is probably in the 20 to 25% range. Meanwhile, you have all these animals that are presumed to be rabid because they're acting vicious that end up not being rabid at all. So the actual number of people bitten by what they perceive to be potentially rabid animals who will die of rabies is much, much lower than 20 or 25%. And because of those numbers, there was opportunity for all sorts of therapies that don't really do anything at all to flourish because they'd have a pretty good success rate. Okay, so scientifically speaking, the Madstone may not have been doing anything, but it still seems like there is some kind of power to it, whether it's psychological 
or the energetic fingerprint. Yeah, I agree, and so did Pat Gibson. If you believe in something strong enough, then maybe there is some power in that stone. I would not say that it wasn't. Maybe, maybe nobody was sort of totally cured, but maybe they were through their belief in that. For J.P. Ellis and his family, part of their role in the community likely centered around the stone. J.P. Ellis could bring a sense of spiritual and physical security to those around him with his family's mad stone and as a minister. And Pat said he relished the opportunity to help those around him in this way. He was a person that would, would help all of his uh, neighbors and friends and stuff. And that's the way that we sort of survived back then. Times were hard back then, and whether the stone worked or not, it held power and value for those who carried it. I mean, even if the fear of rabies was greater than the risk, it seems like there's something special about this mad stone that I really want to believe in. I think now, you know, if I had a friend had cancer, could we not put it on a person and they be healed? I, I just can't imagine that all my ancestors believed in this so much that, uh, you know, that it still wouldn't work, perhaps. Belief can be powerful for people. It can make us see miracles, push ourselves further than we would have thought possible, and give us the strength to carry on in a world that can often make you feel powerless. J.P. Ellis's beliefs led him into the wilderness and into a life in service of his faith. And Joseph P. Ellis had a deep belief in people because he helped a lot of people and established churches and congregations and would travel long distances by horse and carriage, had church service in his own log house on Sundays. And J.P. Ellis was a beacon of his small Kentucky community. He founded churches and preached the gospel, which was the foundation of his belief. He was also the last of his family to carry the Madstone in a world without a true medical treatment for rabies. And he continued to preach until he was almost totally blind. One of his family members would read the Bible for him, then he would start preaching and said, when I saw him with his blind eyes turned toward heaven, and heard his trembling old voice plead for lost souls. I knew God had called him to preach. And so he, he preached right up to the, to the very end. As I went down in the river to pray, saying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown. J.P. Ellis passed away in 1892 at the age of 81. This stone that had helped the Ellis family brave the wilderness of the American continent for nearly 300 years at the time of J.P. Ellis's death might see its necessity decline in the next century, but it was still passed down through the family for another handful of generations. And it turns out the stone is actually quite old, about 350 million years. What are you saying? You mean this magic stone is prehistoric and not from an animal's stomach? Well, one of Pat's other hobbies is collecting fossils. And from that, he knows that the Ellis family's madstone is actually a piece of fossilized coral from the Devonian period. 
So this living thing dies, falls to the bottom of the ocean, gets fossilized, then a few hundred million years later it washes up on a beach in England to take on this whole new existence, saving people's lives. Just the rock that it is, the fossil, you know, the actual value of it would probably be a couple of dollars. But when you think about the history of it coming through Jamestown to all of the families and descendants, it's priceless. In 1983, a cousin of Charlotte's father donated the family Madstone to the Owensboro Museum of Science and History, marking the 13th and final generation who carried the stone. They put it in the museum where it needs to be. It yeah. needs to be protected and, and for our children to go see or, or so forth. I just almost cried the first time I held it because how special. The museum is where Charlotte's father, Reverend Hines, first got to see the Madstone he'd heard about from his grandmother. And I got to hold it in my hand, and I, in doing so, I had a kind of peculiar feeling of knowing how many people had really had that Madstone applied to snake bites or dog bites or whatever. Charlotte has a great-granddaughter, so now there are 16 generations who can trace their lineage back to David Ellis, who first brought the stone from England. This little stone has affected countless lives. Remember Ralph Camp, whose father J.W. was healed by the stone? Coincidentally, his father would go on to marry his mother, whose maiden name was Ellis. He too had heard stories of his ancestors. My mother's cousin did much research on the Ellis family, but she was the one who discovered that sea captain David Ellis brought a ship from England to the colonies. And it also turned out, according to the genealogy expert in my family, my cousin Mildred, I too am a descendant of the Ellis family. In this, you can do a relationship calculator. <clears throat> you can pick Joseph Perkins Ellis and pick Austin Emerson Carter, and you, you calculate, and it tells you what the relationship is. So did you do that? What is he to me? You are the third great-grand-nephew. So he's my third great-grand-uncle? Uncle, right. So let me get this straight. Both you and Ralph are descendants of the Ellis family. Yep. And you had no idea about this connection before you started working on this story. Yeah, I had no idea at all. And really, when I first kind of figured out this connection, it kind of blew my mind. But then on the other hand, Whitesville is a really small community, so I guess I'm not really surprised that we're all connected. Small community or not, you guys are spread across the country, had no contact with each other or even knew of each other's existence before this, but you were all brought together because of this magic stone. I was so curious about this stone that I brought everyone I could find together to talk about it around a big table in the Whitesville Historical Society. Charlotte Whitaker, Doug Reardon, and Pat Gibson. This magic stone had affected us all, and we're wrestling with this idea of how J.P. Ellis, Baptist minister, could have believed in the healing properties of a piece of fossilized coral, and Doug expresses his doubts. Well, I just can't understand it. J.P. Ellis was a man of faith. How could he put his faith in a rock? I don't know. See. I know they didn't have nothing, but a rock? A stone? We all acknowledge and passively agree with his skepticism, and Pat mentioned some of his grandmother's beliefs about natural healing with ginseng or willow bark, 
But then Charlotte says her dad, who was also a minister, was a water witch. What's that? It's a person who, through using dowsing rods or a stick or some kind of tool, can find the location of underground water. And immediately, Doug says, Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, there you go. But now, I I don't know. I don't know what it is, but something make it stick. That came down through the family. And suddenly, Doug's skeptical opinion about the Madstone has shifted into a full-scale endorsement of what you can do with dowsing. And as Doug and Pat are discussing the uses for dowsing, Charlotte kind of offhandedly says something that kind of passed me by at first. But I think it rings true of every family and of every person who looks to their history and to the past to learn about the present and where we've come from. Maybe we all inherited some magic. (laughs) Maybe we've all inherited some magic. I love that. Me too. This episode was produced by me, Austin Carter, with help from my co-host, Ariel Lavery. Our editor is Naomi Starobin. Additional support came from Chad Lampy. Thanks also to Bree Zender of KUNR in Las Vegas for help with the Ralph Camp interview. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. And thanks to the Whitesville Historical Society and Whitesville Baptist Church for hosting me and my interviewees. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Follow us on social media at Middle of Everywhere Pod and at our website, middleofeverywherepod.org. Middle of Everywhere is produced at WKMS in Murray, Kentucky, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and PRX.